Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Trevo. I'm your host, Haley Duradawan, and this is The Current State. Hi, everyone. It's that time again. Time to sit back, relax, and listen to another episode of your favorite international law current events podcast, Trevo. As a friendly reminder, I'm your host, Haley Duradawan, and each week I speak with Trevo blog contributors about their current events articles. Thus far, we have covered topics ranging from the treatment of refugees in Belarus to a recent hostage dispute between Canada and China. And this week, we will be discussing a topic that weekly listeners will know is near and dear to my heart, maritime law. That's right, people. It's time to once more learn about the law of the seas. Today, I am chatting with Ria Mehta about a maritime law dispute between Somalia and Kenya. Hello, Ria. Hey, Haley. This case concerns the theoretical resolution by the International Court of Justice of a long-drawn dispute between the two nations. For the past four decades, Somalia and Kenya have been asserting contesting rights over a triangular portion of the continental shelf, which extends into the Indian Ocean through the borders of the two countries. This portion of the continental shelf is supposedly a treasure trove of oil and gas. In 2009, the two nations entered into a Memorandum of Understanding, whereby they decided to resolve the dispute through negotiations. When talks fell through in 2014, Somalia escalated the dispute for resolution by the International Forum in The Hague. After a lengthy period of eight years, particularly on October 12, 2021, the International Court of Justice delivered its judgment on the dispute, finally delineating the maritime boundary. The methods used by the International Court for this purpose favoured Somalia. Interestingly, the International Court has sought to crystallize the method used in this ruling as the standard procedure to be applied when determining maritime boundaries in resolving international disputes. And how have Kenya and Somalia reacted to the judgment? The judgment was received with great jubilance by Somalia. Given the potential economic value of the disputed waters, the judgment has also assumed great political importance in the country, with President Mohammed Abdullahi Farmaho having placed the judgment on his mantle to receive political gain. In absolute contrast, Kenya has accused the International Court of Bias and refused to afford any recognition to the judgment. Interestingly, after participating in the proceedings, up until the submission of all written pleadings, that is after a period of almost seven years, Kenya, as late as 2021, hinted that it may refuse to make oral arguments. Initially, Kenya cited the COVID-19 pandemic and its consequent impediments, including alleged poor internet connectivity in Nairobi, as reasons to avoid a virtual hearing. However, when nine months later, Kenya notified the UN Secretary-General of its decision to withdraw its declaration under Article 36.2 of the ICJ statute, it was clear that Kenya not only anticipated an unfavorable ruling, but also that the nation had no intention of abiding by it. This assumption was subsequently confirmed by Kenya's reaction, rejecting the judgment in total. What happens now that Kenya has rejected the ICJ's judgment? While it appears that the finality of the ICJ's judgment does not determine the end of Somalia's struggle to enforce its claim over the disputed waters, the ICJ's judgment may be binding, but it is not enforceable. Amongst other measures, Somalia may have to seek the UN Security Council's aid in enforcing the judgment as per Article 94.2 of the UN Charter. It is also in Somalia's favour that Kenya has domesticated the statute of the International Court, as well as the UN Charter, by adopting them into its constitution, recognizing the general rules of international law as the law of Kenya. 
However, the availability of the aforestated legal resorts do not appear to deter Kenya from its active defiance of the judgment. Kenya has publicly vowed to protect its inherent right to its territory by way of pursuing all available means. At this juncture, it is pertinent to recollect that Kenya has only recently upgraded its naval base near the disputed waters to a full military base. Further, it is Kenya's declared belief that enforcement of the judgment will lead to a hazardous strain in the relation between the two nations. Kenya's outright refusal to abide by the judgment is further confirmed by the nation's withdrawal of, from the ICJ under Article 36-2. Pertinently, in 1965, Kenya had submitted the five circumstances which could attract the compulsory jurisdiction of the ICJ. The present case fell squarely within these circumstances. Regardless, Kenya alleges that the ICJ neither had the jurisdiction nor the competence to preside over the resolution of this dispute. This defying nation has even gone as far as attacking the morality and integrity of a presiding Somalian justice of the ICJ, also an author of the judgment, citing an alleged bias in favor of his nationality. I had no idea that Kenya withdrew from the ICJ. That's quite the bold move. Now that you are our resident expert on this dispute, Rhea, what is the core idea that you want our listeners to take from this podcast? The purpose of my analysis is not to gauge the merits of Kenya's actions, but to decipher from them the sliding significance and status of the ICJ. Kenya's actions in the present case evince a modern nation's obvious response to contemporaneous fight-or-flight situations. The present is a clear and great demonstration of nations pledging their allegiance to the concept of global unity and integration by agreeing to put themselves under the international community's scrutiny. However, when its application is put to the test, Ordinarily in contests involving the nation's personal interests, the nation will often choose its own interests, citing sovereignty, whilst unhesitatingly undermining all its previous textual commitments to international unions and authorities. Thank you for speaking with us today, Ria. I really enjoyed delving back into maritime law. Listeners, if you want to read more about Ria's work and the law of the seas, head to our blog, Travo. Also, and I want to emphasize this last point, do remember to subscribe to our podcast. Trevo is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and anywhere that you can find my mom because she is nothing if not supportive. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Trevo is brought to you by Haley Duradawan, Kayleen Kosla, and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travo. See you next week. Au revoir.